I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 29th, 2019. Coming up, our guest today is Randall Monroe, author of the comic XKCD. We talk with him about his new book, How To, which explains things such as how to build a lava moat or how to ski, something useful to know given the current weather conditions here, and how to move your house if you happen to move it to Mars, how to power your house on Mars, and more. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Last week, a paper was published in the journal Nature titled Quantum Supremacy Using a Programmable Superconducting Processor. So what is quantum supremacy other than a phrase that sounds really cool to say? Well, as stated in the paper, the promise of quantum computers is that certain computational tasks might be executed significantly faster on a quantum processor than a classical computer processor. Quantum computers being able to solve problems merely faster than a classical computer is called quantum advantage. But quantum supremacy is when a quantum computer can solve a problem that effectively could not be solved by a classical computer, at least not in any reasonable time. In the early 1980s, the physicist Richard Feynman proposed that a quantum computer could be an effective tool with which to solve problems in physics and chemistry, given that it is exponentially costly to simulate large quantum systems with classical computers. The paper's authors, from Google, NASA, Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and several universities around the world, created a test involving running random quantum circuits, which work like programs specifying a series of operations for the quantum processor to run. Their quantum processor used 53 qubits, or quantum bits, to complete a task in about 200 seconds. They estimate it would have taken over 10,000 years for a state-of-the-art classical supercomputer to complete that. Although they point out that in this task, they specifically formulated a problem that was tailored to be hard for a classical computer but easy for a quantum computer, it still is a proof of concept for quantum supremacy and what could lie ahead in computing. On the science calendar, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science features the exhibit The Science Behind Pixar. This immersive experience explores the science, technology, engineering, art, and math concepts used to bring animated films and their characters to life. Each section in the exhibit focuses on a step in the filmmaking process, modeling and rigging, surfaces, sets and cameras, animation, simulation, lighting and rendering, and delivering an insider's view of the production pipeline used by the artists and computer scientists. That's at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. For more information, go to dmns.org.
You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker, and my guest today is Randall Monroe, perhaps best known for his comic XKCD. And he is also the author of books such as What If and Thing Explainer. In that latter book, he takes the challenge of explaining very technical concepts like rockets and microwaves using only the 1,000 most common words in English. Randall has figured out how to do many things, so he wrote a new book appropriately called How To, which is subtitled Absurd Advice for Common Real-World Problems. And these are very everyday things that you thought you knew how to do, such as throwing things, or walking a dog, or taking a selfie. Well, Randall is with us today to tell us how to do some of the things that he figured out how to do, all in very clever and often not recommended ways. Welcome to the show, Randall. Hi, thanks for having me on. I think we should start off the show with a disclaimer saying, do not try this at home, but if you do, please let us know how it went. You call this a book of bad ideas. Bad ideas can actually be good. They can be learning experiences. Why did you want to write a book about bad ideas? Well, I didn't really start out trying to write a book about bad ideas. I was just writing a book about ideas, and it turned out most of them were bad. Um, <laughs> and I guess that's on me. But what I find is, I, you know, I'll often like, have some simple task that I need to do that seems really like menial or frustrating or like harder than it should be, like sending a file from one place to another or packing up to move. And I always think, like, oh, couldn't there be a better way to do this or at least another way? Um, and I'll, like, come up with some idea, and then, and then I sort of wonder, like, okay, it sounds like that's probably ridiculous, and I already know how to do this, but, like, would that work? And then I get sucked into trying to solve that. <laughs> yeah, and it's fun to go down that rabbit hole. You start off very simply in the book by stating how to open a book and how to choose a reading speak. I should point out, if you don't know how to open a book, you would actually never get to that page. That's true. Um, <laughs> Maybe it should be on the cover. But, but, you know, a lot of the advice in here is especially impractical. Um, but most of the time what I find is that when I try some ridiculous idea and try to figure out whether it would work or not, it usually doesn't end up helping me uh, with the original task. I'm, I, I will often come up with an idea for something that ends up making my own life more difficult. But in the process, I will learn something really interesting that helps me with some other problem later on. So I have all these... these so, like, I have a chapter on how to ski... Uh, Very appropriate for today's weather here. Maybe the listeners would be interested in knowing how to ski. Yeah, well, the fun fact about that chapter, I have still never put on a pair of skis in my life. <laughs> I, I grew up in uh, kind of coastal Virginia, and there just wasn't a lot of skiing around. Um, and so I sort of start off from very basic uh, premises of trying to figure out, like, okay, so you need a slope of some kind if you want to do downhill skiing, and you need skis. So how do you figure out whether something is going to slide or not? You know, the, and so I, I get to talk about coefficients of friction and figure out, like, if you put on wooden skis and you stand on a sloped pavement road, how steep does the slope have to be for you to ski down it? Um, and, you know, if you have rubber skis and you're skating down, you know, like a rock surface, you're not, it's, gonna not, it's not going to slide very easily. 
And so I got to go into the physics of, like, why exactly is snow slippery? Um, and it's my favorite thing about this is, like, the question of why ice is slippery sounds like a very basic thing, but it's actually, like, not completely understood. Yeah, you, you mentioned that everyone assumes it heats up some layer of water or something under the uh, ice skates, but you point out that's not exactly sufficient. Yeah, that's what I always heard, that it's the pressure of the skate that heats the water, and it lowers the melting point of the water, so the water uh, melts. But if you do the math, it suggests that it shouldn't be possible to skate if it's more than three degrees below freezing. And anyone who's actually skated can tell you that that's not true. I, I've seen um, it happen. I know it happens. Yes, it, it's out there. There's, there's photos. There's proof. And I like that there... So I, I did a degree in physics. And so I really... You know, I'm used to kind of thinking about the, the big unsolved problems in physics are things like, you know, unifying quantum mechanics with gravity and, like, looking for the Higgs boson, which is cool, but also very kind of abstract. And I like... It's always a surprise to me to realize how many very simple questions we have not figured out the answer to. Like, I think my favorite one is why there's lightning and thunderstorms. We know that it has something to do with how the air moving, the rapidly rising air, you know, maybe carrying all these water droplets, uh, and it causes a charge to build up. But why? Um, and sometimes people will say, well, it's like when you rub a balloon on your hair, you know, how your hair gets a charge and stands up. Um, but we don't really know why that happens either. So <laughs> Yeah, these so basic I really like everyday crazy. things. Yeah, like they, they seem like they must have an obvious answer, but then you dig into it and you're like, this is more complicated than I thought it was. Well, speaking of digging into it, one of the basic things you talk about, in fact, it comes up frequently in the book under many different circumstances, is how to dig a hole. And I think most people out there, since they were toddlers, think they know how to dig a hole, but you take it to a different level. What What is your perspective on digging a hole? Well, there's a, there's a limit to how much you can dig, as any you know, kid on a beach will learn, uh, using <laughs> only your hands before you get tired, you know, or using a shovel. And so it, it's interesting to think, you know, okay, how easily can you dig a big hole? Um, I use buried treasure as my example of, you know, why you might want to dig a hole, but of course there are lots of reasons. One of my favorite tidbits that I learned about this is, uh, when I was researching this, is that that there is only one case in all of history, a documented case of a pirate burying treasure somewhere, and the treasure was, it was this one island off the coast of Long Island, and the treasure was immediately uh, dug back up and turned over to the authorities. But it turned into this whole thing. Um, but what's, what I thought was interesting was was analyzing, if you have a buried treasure, you think, oh, of course, I wanted to dig that up. But digging is a lot of work. And so I started trying to think, like, if, a treasure, if treasure was buried deep enough, the effort of digging it up, the amount of time you'd have to spend and the amount of labor, would actually, you would make more money if the treasure is only a certain size. You might make more money by just getting a job digging somewhere else and getting paid by the hour. Uh, and, and you could make more money that way than digging up the treasure. And came up with the math of, like, how to tell whether treasure is worth digging up uh, if you have to use the shovel. Right, so there, there's a treasure value versus difficulty or energy plot. And if you're yeah, you know, exactly. below or above the line, you know whether to go for it or not. Exactly. Well, then there are lots of ideas that sound really good on the face of it. Like, it makes sense. But then if you, like, sit down and work out the kind of cost and the benefit it doesn't work out as well as it looks. Um, like, people always have these ideas for, like, how to power things, uh, which is a theme I, I think I return to a lot in the book. Mm -hmm. You know, like, 
we'll put solar panels in the roads. Or, you know, there was like this uh, lamp that could light up your whole room, and all you have to do is lift a weight every day, and the weight will descend, and it'll provide power through gravity. You could put solar panels in your house and stuff. And, like, these all kind of sound equally good uh, if you don't work through the math, but, like, some of them will work, and some will not. Like, some of them wouldn't provide nearly enough power. Some of them sound actually equally bad, then, in some cases. Yeah, and what I really like about about learn, uh, science and physics and math and stuff is that, that it lets you come up with a ridiculous idea and think, wouldn't that be weird? But then, like, actually find out, would that work or not? Because sometimes you get surprised in, in both directions. There are ideas that sound really good, like putting lead in gasoline or using chlorofluorocarbons as coolants. Those both sounded like really good ideas, and then they both turned out to release, like, you know, chemicals into the atmosphere that caused some horrible catastrophe. Uh, and those were actually both independent ideas from the same person, which, uh, that's a heck of a legacy. <laughs> but then there are also, like, really ridiculous-sounding idea ideas that turn out to work pretty well. I always think of electrofishing, which is this technique used in fisheries research where you use electric current to stun fish, and it's mm-hmm. useful in certain circumstances. But it sounds like an idea that was come up with by a little kid who doesn't understand electricity. <laughs> Like, well, what if we just put a toaster in the water, and then the fish will all get zapped and float to the surface? Like, if someone told me that, I'd be like, well, look, that's not how that works, you know? But then you sit down and you do the math, and you're like, well, if you do the electrodes, you know, a certain way, and you have the equipment this way, that actually does work. Kids, kids uh, may actually have the best ideas, because they're not constrained by what they expect should be a good idea. Yeah, well, I always love answering questions from kids, and I don't know that it's necessarily that their ideas are better but they're not trying to be clever, you know? Right. They're yes. just asking straightforward questions. And a lot of the time, you know, a question that sounds ridiculous, I, I try just not to be confident I know the answers to things, because sometimes even really simple and obvious things can surprise you. Yeah, did you think you had an idea for a chapter all nicely fleshed out at a high level, and when you got into it, it went in a completely different direction? Yeah, I mean, most of the chapters end up going, I go down one rabbit hole or another researching something. Um, there was one chapter on how to catch a drone. Mm, yes. And I, I figured, you know, if you have one of those photography drones floating around your house, you don't know where it's, who's flying it, and you want to get rid of it. There are all these, like, complicated technical solutions for, for anti-drone countermeasures. But I was just thinking, if you just have your backyard with, like, ordinary backyard uh, stuff, like sports equipment, what would be the best projectile? And I was imagining this scenario, and I thought, I could throw a baseball at it, but would a basketball work better? Because it's, it, I can't throw a basketball as fast, but maybe it doesn't need to go too fast, and the basketball's bigger. Right, larger so cross-section to hit. Error, right. you know? Yeah, and so I started, and, and so, so I ended up going kind of deep into that question of, like, which piece of sporting equipment would be the most accurate if you're trying to launch a projectile to hit a small floating target? Um, and I used a bunch of papers from sports medicine on the accuracy of, you know, professional pitchers versus, you know, hockey players hitting at a goal versus soccer players kicking. And, and I got data on all these different sports and built up this whole model to figure out how well they would do at anti-drone countermeasures. And the one, I had trouble finding a good uh, comparable study for tennis player accuracy. And so one of my favorite things about doing this book is it, in a few places, gave me an excuse to, like, reach out to experts in some field. And so for uh, when I couldn't find a paper on, uh, on you know, tennis player target-hitting accuracy, I reached out to Serena Williams. <laughs> and, like, to my, to my delight, she was, like, more than happy to help out. 
Is this her first physics experiment, field experiment that you're aware of? Um, you know, I don't know. She does a lot of cool stuff. Uh, she has a whole, uh, <laughs> you know, she has, she has her tennis career, and she also does, like, investing and charitable stuff. And, like, she does, she does a lot of cool stuff. So, so, <laughs> so I was, she may have a side gig doing, you know, some physics lab work or something like that. You know? Yeah, yeah, I have no idea. Um, I, would, I would not be surprised. The, um, the thing that... I was just worried because I'm like, I know she's really busy. I don't want to take up her time. And so I tried to think of, like, what's the least complicated and labor-intensive, you know, way to get data for this. And and so I thought, okay, well, I, could, I, I asked her if she could, like, put a little target on the wall uh, while she was out at, you know, practicing. Um, just, like, have someone stick a piece of masking tape to the wall and take photos so I could get the dimensions and the distances and then videotape herself trying to hit it from a known distance with, like, ten serves in a row. And then I could feed that data into my model and figure out how effective would she be at hitting a drone. And not only was she happy to help, she was like, we have a drone. Do you want me to just try to hit that? <laughs> and I, I was like, yes, that would work too. Uh, that, would, that, would, that would work great. Um, and so they flew a drone over the tennis court, and uh, her husband piloted it while she stood at the baseline and served and tried to hit it. Um, and it... Uh, it took her three serves to shoot it down. Hmm. Uh, That's impressive. My, my initial guess had suggested that it would take a tennis pro five to seven shots. Hmm. So the three serves might, it, it's only a few data points. It might be, that might be an outlier uh, statistically. Well, the, but I think it's she's an outlier statistically as far as tennis yeah, pros, exactly. too. So, Anything yeah. she does, you've got to expect it to be a few deviations <laughs> away from whatever model you have. Well, speaking of uh, special, now you did a amazing job in this book of, you know, I, I learned how to throw a wedding cake. I, I learned how many calories are in a pool made of cheese. Uh, but you did pull in a few experts like Serena and another expert some people may have heard of. Uh, you pulled in when you wanted to learn how to make an emergency landing with an airplane. Uh, who was your guest for that one? Uh, I reached out to uh, astronaut Chris Hadfield who was the commander of the International Space Station. And then before that, he was, uh, he was a test pilot for the Canadian and U.S. Air Force and has flown over 100 different aircraft, and he's uh, one of the most qualified pilots alive. And again, despite, yeah, despite knowing what kind of books I write, he agreed to answer whatever questions I might have. <laughs> well, that's a very generous plus there. I'm sure he's had a few emergency landings he had to deal with. Oh, yeah. Well, I was surprised. I was going to ask him about all these scenarios, and I kind of arranged them from the least ridiculous to the most ridiculous. And I figured I would just start with the least ridiculous and ask him these scenarios in order until he hung up on me. And I figured it wouldn't take long before he would say, like, well, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> um, but to my surprise, um, like the first question I asked him was if you had to land, uh, make an emergency landing and you couldn't find any air airfields or even roads or open spaces the only option you had were farmer's fields, which crop do you want to steer toward? Hmm. Do you want something tall and bushy that provides padding or something low to the ground, like strawberries? Sure. Um, and, and my favorite thing about talking to him was everything, all his answers came with no hesitation and in that, like, air traffic control astronaut voice where he just sounds very, <laughs> everything's very routine and he sounds completely in con command, you know? And so he would just, like, immediately answer my question with, like, well, that's not a ridiculous question at all. I fly small planes and you think about that all the time. You know, when you're driving into the airfield, you look around and you think, if I had to come down there, could I? What about over there? And then he started rattling off crops and what times of year it was okay to land in them. <laughs> well, that's, that's good information to know, especially if you're flying in the Midwest. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, and so then I started working up the more and more ridiculous questions, and he just answered all of those, too. Like, I asked him about landing on an aircraft carrier, but, you know, in a passenger plane, I asked him about landing on a submarine, a ski hmm. jump. Um, I asked him about the opening scene in the 2003 movie of The Core, where uh, <laughs> it's about the Earth's core, where the Earth's core stops spinning and they have to restart it with nuclear bombs. Uh, not the most scientifically rigorous movie, and the opening scene shows the space shuttle crash landing in the middle of L.A., mm-hmm. Uh, and I asked him if that would be possible, and it was surprisingly, uh, he sounded like, yeah, that might work. I was surprised by how often his answer would be either like, oh, yeah, people have done that, uh, or occasionally like, oh, yeah, I've done that. Um, and then when I asked him about uh, how you'd land on an Olympic ski slope, which was one where he surprised me by saying, like, no, I don't think you could pull that off, and here's why. And then he started explaining how the the ski slope was laid out and how you'd need to approach it. And, you know, the problem, a uh, uh, ski jump, how the, the jump is laid out and how you need to approach. And then he, and he said, well, see, before I went into the Air Force, I used to be a ski instructor. Ah, that <laughs> so helps. Everything. Uh, <laughs> well, we're nearing the end of our show here. And after the show, I have to give a weather report here in, in snowy Colorado. Uh, traditionally, I do this by looking on the computer and looking up the uh, weather forecast, but I'm just trusting that the weather forecast I see on the computer is correct, and the listeners are trusting me as a non-weather expert that what I'm saying is what I'm reading is going to be the forecast. But in your book, you actually help people uh, learn how to do weather forecasting themselves and not to depend on disembodied voices over the airwaves like me. So can you explain uh, someone how they could do a uh, forecast of the weather? Well, the computer models for weather forecasting are the most reliable that we've got. You know, that's the best way to go if you have one. But what I was surprised to learn was that that old rhyme about red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky at morning, sailors take warning, Mm -hmm. that actually has a grain of truth to it. Uh, It comes from the geometry of how the sun sets and how it lets you see what the clouds are doing way off beyond the horizon. Uh, And, you know, it's not, it only works in certain zones and temperate zones where weather moves from uh, west to east, but it's, uh, it gives you an edge that's a little bit better than just guessing. Oh, yeah, that's great. They work as like distant mirrors for you to see weather over the horizon, as it were. Yeah, exactly. For there to be a red sky at night, you know, a red sunset, you need the sun, because the sun sets in the west, uh, you need lots of clear air for the sunlight to pass through. To, because the air is what filters out the blue wavelengths and lets the red light through. And then you need clouds over you to catch the light. So a red sky at night means that there's clear air to your west, but clouds where you are, and that means that the weather is changing to become more clear. Now, well, Unless that... there's a hurricane coming from the other direction. <laughs> right. You want to look at the weather forecast you can. I'll remind folks about that rhyme every now and then if the computer breaks down. Uh, I really appreciate you being on the show. There's so many more chapters in the book. Uh, I advise everyone to go out and figure out how to grab a copy of How To, uh, which also tells you how to dispose of the book when you're done with it. So thank you very much for being on the show, Randall. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. That was Randall Monroe, the creator of the comic XKCD. We talked about his book, How To, which explains how to do things like jumping really high or how to throw things or land an airplane on a submarine or build a lava moat. You can find his comic at XKCD.com, which is spelled XKCD.com. 
where you can learn about throwing a wedding cake or throwing a pool party. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by the Charlie Hunter Trio. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.